Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. For as long as records have been kept, they have reflected an ongoing dispute over how landless poor can become landholders. If politics is how we live together, to paraphrase Professor Aristotle of Athens, then the not entirely apt term land reform has been at the heart of that living together. Not in the polis, but out in the countryside, where for most of human history, the majority of people have been living. In her new book, The Long Land War, Joe Gouldy tells the history of the last hundred years of land reform. She chronicles the work of Irish peasants, Hindu saints, development analysts, academics, economists, indigenous farmers, squatters, and digital activists to shelter and feed smallholders, renters, migrants, and squatters. Joel Gouldy is Associate Professor of History at Southern Methodist University. She has previously written Paper Machines and with David Armitage co-authored The History Manifesto. Joel Gouldy, welcome to Historically Thinking. Oh, it's so nice to be here with you, Al. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I want what to say to you and to listeners that that grinding noise in the background is not me and my molars as I listen to Joe say manifest historical falsehoods, but my dog who has chosen this moment to chew a bone and will also refuse us to be put out of the study. So just uh, that's just pro tip. Um, so as I said to you when, when we began, uh, before we began recording, never has a book on the last 100 years of land reform involved such a, a honestly, brutally honest autobiographical introduction. I think we can state that this is the most brutally honest autobiographical introduction of any book on land reform. So I actually, having read that last for once, I want to uh, go back to it because I, I, think that the, I think the listeners would be really interested in the stuff that you're bringing to the table. So uh, first of all, and I've read this on your website, and you might not have alluded to your introduction, you started programming BASIC when you were 10. Who was responsible for this? Uh, my mother, the computer programmer. Well, and oh, also the, the larger culture. I mean, we'll get right <laughs> at the landscape question. I grew exactly. up in the Silicon Prairie in a company town, and my daddy and everybody else's daddy was an engineer. Uh, so so I've ref- in, in other pieces of writing, I've talked about the story of how I came to do code and you know, also deeply cultural social history where I look at maps and, you know, public gatherings and marches and peasant resistance and like, you know, the stuff that tells us about social relationships and no data. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, that's a very important uh, bridge in my work. And it, it comes from the place that I come from. I've alluded to this place, the Silicon Prairie, I mean, Richardson, Texas, which is where I grew up. It's where I now live. I teach at Southern Methodist University. 
I can see the steeple of the church where I grew up, in the, raised by Methodists. Uh, I refer to it elsewhere as the land without history, because history was not a subject that people knew or talked about or understood. Uh, most engineers were exempt from service in the Vietnam War. And so there was a, a sort of missing cultural memory. People in my town were not exercised that we were in Vietnam. They weren't exercised to go to Vietnam. Uh, they didn't talk about history. History was a subject uh, of veneration of the great state of Texas and the founding fathers. It was a hagiography subject. It wasn't something for critical thinking. It was handed to the, to the football coach. Uh, but everybody learned math. And everybody learned code. And they, we had really excellent teachers, you know, sometimes with PhDs for those subjects because it was a town of engineers. So I grew up, you know, literate in those other subjects. And I, you know, I pushed them away because I wanted to know what these historians were talking about. I wanted to know where we came from. And I found myself uh, in graduate school at Berkeley surrounded by, you know, the children of other historians, the children of activists, the children of civil rights lawyers who had these stories about how we came to be in the 20th century. Uh, that were, it was so impressive to interact with those people. I still feel that way about our mm -hmm. colleagues. It's a very strange thing when you, a culture has uh, history is cherished but unimportant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, you know, it could make a young person curious. And I think that's how many of our students feel about the past when they come to, to us. You know, they have also, many of them, come from public schools where critical history is not a subject for critical thinking. Mm -hmm. But in every history department in a university, we're, we're trying to understand why there are competing views on the past. Mm -hmm. Every great book of history has some historiographical section where we say, you know, yeah. The subject has been opened in the past or it's been forgotten and there are reasons for that. And that's why I'm going to look at the facts. That's why I'm going to look at the evidence for you. And ultimately, history shares with engineering and physics and all great subjects of scientific research this, this fascination with facts of looking at the evidence. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we need to embrace you know, there's sometimes a hesitance to talk about history that way because many of us are so proud of our skills as, as qualitative thinkers rather than quantitative thinkers. But we're, I, we're all interested in evidence. Yeah. Um, well, this is, uh, this is a tender subject to someone who came of age during the 90s, uh, you know, who was deeply read in Foucault for a while um, and, and Derrida too. So, uh, but it is interesting that I, 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 last year I tried to do a 12-part series on the moves of historical thinking. And uh, discerning listeners will note that I've never done a conversation on evidence uh, and that's not for want of trying. Uh, that's it's one which I have yet to have a historian sign up to. No, I don't mm. think so. Mm. I don't really want to mm. do that. Uh, mm. Well, eventually we're, we're going to get it done. But it, it's interesting how I, hard hard that is to it is hard to convince persuade people that they use facts and evidence. You know, for what it's worth, I think one of the great meditations on evidence in our time is Joel Lepore's "These Truths," where she starts out emphasizing, you know, that the debates about how the interpretation of the Constitution and the Founding Fathers are based on facts and, and pieces of evidence, and you can go into an archive and look at them. And that's what separates history as a field from, you know, many other disciplines where they theorize, they get information secondhand. We really want to know who, who wrote the Federalist Papers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Someone did. Where did that come from? Yes. Yeah. And what were the varieties of, of opinion? We won't rest until we have looked at every single document in that document trail. Mm -hmm. 
Well, you then had the great privilege of being taught by someone who's only taught me through the printed page, John Stilgo. Hmm. Um, could you explain who he is and and sort of, well, actually, I, I once came across someone, some uh, now dead professor referring to his teaching, which hmm. struck me as awfully pretentious, hmm. but sometimes it's not. Hmm. And I think John Stilgo actually has a teaching. So could mm-hmm. you describe John Stilgo's mm-hmm. teaching and, and what you took from him? So John Stilgo is is one of the great practitioners of landscape history and American studies. So I encountered him as an undergraduate at at Harvard uh, in a course w- that was taught in a darkened room, uh, illuminated only by slides. We had two slide projectors and the style of Burkhart, comparative visual history, so that you're never looking at just one image, you're looking at two images next to each other, which jogs the mind to compare and contrast uh, as a style of engagement. And he was using this to to tell us about the history of ethnic settlement and farming as technique, farming as a historical technique, farming and farm building and farm architecture linked to different waves of immigration in the American past. Um, He was using this to teach us about cities and the history of advertising and the history of uh, roads and rail and post offices and many things that later became a subject of fascination for me, uh, thinking about the history of modernity more broadly from the perspective of Britain and its empire. Now, Stilgo wasn't the only person who who did that or does this. I, you know, I hasten to add that other practitioners are alive and well. I studied with some of them. Paul Groth, uh, Dennis Cosgrove is alas no, no longer with us. Del Upton is still alive, publishing and holding conferences at the Barton Oaks, along with Stephen Daniels, who's the great British practitioner of landscape history. In the 1970s and 1980s, this was a, a, a major wave of social and cultural history. You know, for everything from understanding the history of housing and poverty in the 19th century city, you know, how, exactly how how dank and overcrowded the dwellings of mill workers were in most 19th century urbanizations, um, to, you know, to tracing waves of migration and community and something about the sense of community. You know, what does it mean that New England towns are built around an open square? That's one of Stilgo's great questions. Um, please. Yeah, well, so I mean, we were talking before. Um, I came to Stilgo primed by sort of my fascinations, even as a very young child. So I grew up in southern New Jersey, and I grew up surrounded by, well, not Quakers anymore, but I, the remnants of Quakerdom. Um, meeting houses and cemeteries without uh, headstones and large buttonwoods or sycamores to act as lightning mm-hmm. rods. And uh, my father and my, my my grandmother, grandfather still alive at the time, and they lived on the other side of South Jersey, on the edge of the Pine Barrens. And that I thought in my head, I thought I live in Quaker South Jersey. And Nana and Papa, they live in <laughs> Italian South Jersey. <laughs> and so I was looking at landscape variations. I was looking at vegetation differences. You know, and, and when you talk about uh, barns and such, uh, one of the great features of the Italian side of South Jersey were uh, enormous, enormous chicken houses for all the Italian and Jewish and other Eastern Europeans who came and raised uh, eggs during the egg boom of the 1920s, uh, which I then was just like, you can find that in P.G. Woodhouse stories. 
set in Long Island in the 1920s. This is talking about connections. Like all these people coming over to farm eggs led to a long Zambone family argument of can are, are Jewish egg farmers farmers? You know, uh, this is a, a inter, this is a Gentile, wow. a Gentile wow. Jew discussion, which is, which has existed in, for like 50, 70 years in the family. Okay. Um, so you can find amazing, you know, amazing. Yeah, anecdotes exactly. About so you can see these ethnic yeah, history. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know, one of the reasons why I think landscape history is so important and it, Bill Sewell makes this point in his logics of history is that it gives us clues about about the great history of lived experience by many people yes. who did not leave other traces on the landscape. They right. left their fences and their barns and their chicken coops. They, they left manuals sometimes of how to run their farms or how they administered their houses. And or they how might they have imagined no- their houses and barns should be run, I should say. Yeah, exactly. We, exactly. We can compare that with the actual material evidence and see the difference. And so there, there are clues about community and individuality, mm-hmm. about what communities prize and how much how much space they think they should have in common and what they should do with that space. And that's something that I really learned from Stilgo. And of course, that gets us into one of the fundamental questions about modernity itself, which, which is, is the destiny of individuation, mm-hmm. single owner propriety, the single ownership of a piece of land. Is that destiny? Is it inevitable? And uh, when we start thinking about really cosmic scales, you know, this brings us straight face to face with car- with carbon in the atmosphere and climate change. It's the, is the Earth's climate something that belongs to us all as a commons? Is it something? Is the management of that of that atmosphere something that's best going to be arranged by private corporations and regulations on private corporations by ownership <coughs> via carbon taxation? Um, so there, you know, there are huge questions sort of floating in the background of these old, fanciful, seemingly fanciful techniques about vernacular architecture. It's the ability to study in the landscape these traces of ideas about the individual and about the community, about what we value. And my sense, my sense when I started writing the current book, The Long Land War, is that we could use these traces of the landscape, we could use this visual information and information from surveying and the history of land ownership to really get at these massive questions about what the 20th century was about, what modernity is about, about individuation. And that's what I think I've done in the book. I'm telling a story about the rise of private property that doesn't end inevitably with lock-in private property rights. It tells a story about the expansion of ideas about the commons via intellectuals like Eleanor Ostrom tells the story about community techniques in the landscape, like drawing maps of where the water is polluted, drawing maps where the entire village gets together in a village in India and draws in the dirt. And I wanted to understand these transformations of using the landscape to talk about what's most common, what's most sacred, via this kind of minimal trace, you know, drawing on the landscape, getting together in a public space, building a building in a different way, uh, creating an administration or a bureaucracy around mapping soil on an international level. Could those complicate our understanding of what property means in the 20th century? and what where it's going in the 21st century in a way that you know intellectual history intellectual history doesn't quite get there could we make it more rich using these techniques using these other kinds of archives well that's, so that's a really, that's a yeah. very skilled and practiced setup and i should move along it 
but instead I'm going to go back. <laughs> and I, I need to, which I shouldn't, because I, I noticed with interest, this is the second book that you've had mm-hmm. a hand in with the, mm-hmm. with long in the title. Mm-hmm. So could you, I, cause, because there's very much, uh, there's a very much your previous argument is also in this, in this book. So could you briefly describe what you and, and David Armitage were at in the long view? Mm. Uh, and how, the history manifesto. The hi- sorry, the, his- the history <laughs> manifesto, which is the long view. Yes. Yeah. The history <laughs> manifesto starts out with an inquiry into, uh, into what we call a crisis of short termism, And we plotted, you know, using Google, Google ingrams, it's a very simple technique that anybody can use for measuring words over time in the repository of Google Books. We plotted the rise and rise of the phrase short-term or short-termism. A lot of people in the 20th century have thought that we are thinking as a society along shorter and shorter-term lines, even while scientists deliver to us verdicts that we are in trouble on long-term horizons even in the nearer and nearer future because of the amount of carbon in the atmosphere and the consequences that that will have for uh, drought and crop failure and displacement in our lifetimes and in our children's lifetimes. So long-term thinking, what is it? How can we get to it? Uh, you know, there's a, there's a history in history departments of decrying long-term thinking, and rightly so, because we stepped away from the great meta-narratives of the 19th century. We have overturned those narratives that presume that European empire means progress, and the Christian church means progress, and progress mean, is, can be identified with economic wealth and certainty. Uh, and that, you know, that, that's from a body of historical theory, which goes back through the 1960s and 1970s, thinking about different ways of imagining the long term. But in history departments, we've been writing dissertations on shorter and shorter time periods. And so David and I just wanted to, we wanted to raise questions about that. And honestly, we wanted to raise questions about that in part because I was asking David as the senior historian at Harvard while I was a postdoc there, I was asking him about this project, this project in particular, the Longland War, which I had already started. I had just finished one 150 year book on British history, which was a little, it was a little gutsy, Roads to Power, uh, the making of the British road network and making of the infrastructure state. But I felt like 150 years was the right time period for examining that phenomenon in the history of the state and the history of modernization. And similarly, as I was looking at the history of land ownership over the long durée, I felt like two or 300 years was really the right time frame. And in the introduction to the book as written, you know, I stretch back all the way to Babylon to get a sense of the long durée about what's so original about this moment, 1881 to 1974, that I am calling the long land war. Uh, and David said, you know, I think there's something there. I think there is a sense in which thinkers like Lawrence Stone were once writing long-term histories. We don't talk about Toynbee. Uh, in the graduate program, maybe we should, especially in an era of climate change. I, this was in part inspired also by conversations with people like Depeche Chakrabarty, who's, you know, essentially embracing a long-term view in order to understand the situation of what it means to live in the Anthropocene and write history in the Anthropocene. He says we need to look at the rise of cities. We need to look at the rise of carbon-based civilizations and new forms of energy as working on geological levels. We need to be talking as historians about what that means. Now, there were critics who said, you know, big data is not necessarily better than small data. I completely agree. I completely agree. And I think David would as well. We are still friends. 
we uh, neither both of us have been investigating long-term thinking as a new way of exploring important, pertinent, relevant stories in history. Uh, David's magnificent book on civil wars and history is a great exemplar of a, an even longer durée than mine. I mean, he's, his takes place over 2,000 years. Uh, mine is a mere two, 200, really, really just 100. I mean, it's really just a moyen durée. Um, but, you know, it's not for every scholar. But I think we've seen over the last handful of years that more and more historians are turning in this direction. Scott Nelson's investigation of oceans of grain is, is a great example. Jill Lepore's exercise in trying to understand the history of America anew in these truths. Or I uh, think about Sunil Amrith's wonderful book about uh, the history of water in India. How do you understand the environment of South Asia, if not over a long durée, which allows you to examine what it was that colonialism did to India and what post-colonialism has tried to achieve? Well, that's very nice. Um, so let's get, to you, no, let's get back to the book. Um, so what is, um, as I used to like to say to undergraduates, what is your argument? <laughs> so it, you, you started us off by talking about land reform. I use the phrase land redistribution because most American readers have very little idea about what land reform is, although it was a, the current term for most of the period in which, that I was discussing, and it's still an important term in certain social science fields today. I'm interested in a moment of land redistribution. So over the long durée, my argument is that the tempo of eviction and displacement has been a historical certainty since the exile of the Jews in Babylon. It's been a weapon used against ethnic groups. It's been a fact of environmental change. Eviction is a hard reality, and Marx knew it. But in the 19th century, peasants began to organize and develop new techniques of resistance, which resulted in part, in arguments against reparations in land, which were pursued in Ireland and India, with the result of creating the world's first land, modern land reform and rent control. And those were passed in Ireland in 1881. This is, it's of course, not a news story to anyone who does Irish history. But understanding that as an event on the world stage is new. And my, my argument is that, that those events in Ireland can be seen to to have dynamically influenced conversations about foreign relations, about international governance, about the destiny of former colonies uh, by British administrators affiliated with the United Nations leading up to the founding of the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. And if you examine their work, the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, was uh, the first arm, the first arm of the United Nations founded a week before the United Nations itself. The FAO was dedicated to the cause of helping post-colonial nations to create more, equalita more egalitarian economies by redistributing land and thus righting the sins of European empire. And that was a global phenomenon. I mean, it has communist versions, it has socialist versions, it has capitalist versions. But through the from the 1940s through the 1970s, everyone in the social sciences and foreign policy, so in some way, 
invested in trying to make land reform happen, whether they're trying to make a, you know, an individual proprietor kind of market-based land reform happen, which is happening at the Ford and Rockefeller Foundation in the United States, or they're pursuing a, a Maoist version of land redistribution and the Cultural Revolution, or, or some hybrid, for example, the work that, that the UN is supporting in Tanzania and in many Latin American countries, where technology is supposed to be used to support smallholders. I think this is a very important episode in world history because it's, it's, it's the moment that puts the brake on that unending cycle of evictions and displacements. For, for almost 100 years, the peasants of the world draw breath and eviction and displacement are slowed down and it seems within reach to organize a global government in the service of global peasants and renters and working people, which will ensure shelter and community free from displacement for all. That's the argument. Um, let's. You have four parts to it, and I want to gallop through them briefly. Just give a sketch, um, so um, that people have an understanding of the sort of the support and the buttresses uh, for the entire trajectory of the argument. Part one, you, you refer to the title is "Decolonizing the Rome Consensus." Um, should we begin with what the Rome Consensus is, or should we actually talk about Ireland in some in more in more a little bit more detail and describe what a sort of um, a break that had been from what had been going on for the 60, 100 years prior to that in Britain. Uh, yeah. So, well, I mean, it's, it's uh, we can talk about Ireland in more detail and then bring that into the Rome consensus, certainly. Uh, so Ireland is a place of land confiscation and military colonial rule since at least the 17th century, if not before. Cromwell's soldiers are paid in land. You know, entire villages are the subject of genocide. Uh, and Irish Catholics, the majority of the population, are forbidden from owning or inheriting land until the 1780s and really until they're forbidden from participating in their own government until the 19th century, until Catholic reform. So... Uh, out of Ireland comes a tremendous, tremendously fruitful body of, of, of political writing and organizing, both violent and nonviolent, uh, which has a, a global face because there's an enormous Irish and active Irish diaspora in both North America and Australia, really all around the world. And this Irish diaspora is, is writing about the about the primary sin of land confiscation. And they're proposing that the frame for understanding this land confiscation is that there is a land war, that colonization is nothing other than the unjust seizure of land by an invader. So, you know, if you think, want to think about what that looks like, it looks like you know, India is in a land war, Australia is in a land war, native indigenous subjects of North America are in a land war. And there are writers in this tradition, especially Henry George, who make those connections, a global war against empire, anti-colonialism viewed not in terms of labor, but in terms of all of the subject colonized classes, regardless of race, who have had lands stolen from them or have been displaced to, in some way. Uh, so that, that line of reasoning informs the kind of Irish resistance that, that's building in the 1870s through the, the period that's properly identified as the Irish Land War, 1879 to 1883 or 1886. Um, 
And it results in these unprecedented bureaucratic developments uh, from Britain, the first land court, which is appointed to oversee the transition of land owned by absentee English landlords in Ireland to Irish smallholders, creation of a peasant proprietary where every peasant ha- is a smallholder. And later, later there will be attempts to set up co- state-run cooperatives and seed sharing programs that will support those small farmers to keep them in business. So, so the creation of this land court and the rent control system creates uh, a vision of a new kind of state bureaucracy. So if you think of the state as the builder of infrastructure heretofore, you know, the builder of roads and sidewalks and the opener of toll roads, um, the builder of bridges to support national commerce. This is, the, this is a new version of capitalism, a new version of capitalism where smallholders are going to be supported by the state, where there's a possibility the state acting, as Henry George would say, as the, as the sole landlord, displacing the landlord monopoly. Um, so, so as to ensure that, uh, that ordinary people can afford a house, they can afford to rent a dwelling, they can afford to rent a farm if they're in agculture. So a new version of the economy emerges. Now, these ideas so, have what, what, one question. Sure. One question. Yeah. Um, before we get to Georgism, um, which I think Jacques yes. Barzun says is in Dawn from Dawn to Decadence is one of the unforgotten, most important intellectual movements of late 19th century, which I think is, 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 is fair. Um, mm. the, is this a, happening in theory or in practice first? Because mm. I, I think it's clear, this is not just Manchester liberals coming mm. up with mm-hmm. cute ideas and then imposing them at Irish president. This is bubbling up from below. This mm-hmm. is, uh, this is mm-hmm. peasants pra- working out their own practice for how things should be. And then there's engaging and basically there's a dialectical going on. There, there is, there is, um, and uh, that dialectical is something that I'm working out in the process of finalizing pri- finalizing another book, which is really about 19th century Ireland. The long mm. land war doesn't get that deeply no, into, <laughs> into Ireland, so I might I might bracket that conversation. Yeah. George, you know, George is George is very interesting in this context. I, I would agree with Barzun's statement: a great forgotten intellectual of the 19th century, great for seed of these forgotten movements there. And this is something that was known and talked about in the 1950s. Oh, I mean, it's amazing. Once you start, see, once you start yeah. seeing those trees, you, yes. you, you can't neglect them. Everyone is like either a Georgist or an anti-Georgist, it would seem in the late 19th century. Yeah. Everyone, people are, you know, yeah. people are drunk on this stuff. This is, this is like the most important thing for people. It. Well, it is. I mean, there there are schools founded, uh, you know, and there's been great scholarship and uh, about yeah. this in the Ameri- on the American side as well. You know, tra- mm-hmm. tracing tracing the way in which George harnesses the in- energies of English Chartists who moved to America, people like George Henry Evans who mm-hmm. um, supports the Homestead Act. But we're in the 19th century. Do we, shall we yeah. talk about the, how this how this leads up to the Roman yeah. census? Yes, the so United please. Nations. Yes, indeed. But I, but I also the the inf, the influence on India happens prior to the Rome consensus. So we should probably talk about that because that that's easy enough to understand. Sort of the the sort of the virus, the intellectual virus, and the, the cultural practice is transmitted through British administration across the seas. Yes. So Ireland is another site of land, not land 
uh, theft, but British intervention on the rent market, which causes the impoverishment of small shareholders through increasing rates of taxation and rent. Uh, and so this is the subject of riots across the 19th century. And there are some occasionally um, uh, uh, sympathetic British administrators, for example, George Campbell, who were interested in more just ways of, of gathering rent and taxation that will support the development of infrastructure so that India can become a power in its own right. By and large, Britain is not interested in that because it's an extractive system. Empire is built as an extractive system. And they're, so they're, they're, they don't really care that the, the Indian peasant is in a state of uh, unendurable poverty or that tens of millions of Indians are perishing of starvation over the course of a century. But the, these issues come to a crest in India at around the same time as Ireland. And uh, thanks to the work of a generation of scholars who have looked into these ties, we now know that organizers are sharing, they're sharing techniques between Ireland and India. They're meeting up in pubs in, in London and talking about the rent strike as a strategy. Uh, and uh, Aurobindo and Gandhi are pursuing these, these tactics and they, they come on the heels of other organizers of peasant unions uh, about whom we are learning more and more. So the Indian struggle for, for independence from the foundation of the Congress party to, uh, to actual independence um, is, is a period of time where rent and land redistribution are at the absolute forefront of Indian polity. This is something that's easily forgotten because we talk about Gandhi and the Salt March, and we, we write a historiography, a tradition in which Gandhi immediately inspires Martin Luther King, and this is just a you know, the American view of everything, um, that, that arc. Uh, but well before the Salt March, Gandhi is organizing rent strikes, and that's actually where he is joined by Nehru, the future Prime Minister of India, Prasad, the future President of India. You know, most of most of the people who will be influential in the early years of independence cut their teeth in these rent strikes, and so it's very clear to everyone in India that uh, on the eve of independence, one of the first questions that India has to solve is how to undo the class the class division in India that has resulted from a few zamindars descended from rent collectors who are entitled to the profits of the land and a main, mainly la landless or poor tenant, poor, poor landholder population who are farming small plots and misery. And land redistribution, land reform is is looked on in this in this first generation of independence as the sovereign solution. India is going to do what Ireland did. Mm -hmm. Now, this is no secret. And so if you go looking at British political theorists of the 1940s and 1950s who were writing about the future of decolonization, you, you don't have to look far to come across folks like Doreen Warner, who is perhaps the most in, one of the most influential thinkers at the FAO and at the U UN in the decade of its, when it's getting started. Doreen Warner has a direct connection to revolutionary Ireland. Her father was a Finian, her, sorry, her grandfather was a Finian. Um, and she believes that, uh, that we're in a world historical moment in the 1940s where uh, the president of Ireland has already been pursued in Mexico in the Mexican Revolution um, via Zapata and the entitlement of local communities to their own land. And uh, we're about to see the same revolution in India. And this is exactly the kind of revolution that Egypt, 
and most of the Middle Eastern countries and Eastern European countries also need to create to create economic opportunity for the masses. They need to start off as smallholders with entitlement not to be displaced, with entitlement to a small plot of land and government support such that the smallholder can turn into a manufacturer. So the small farm becomes a bucket factory and then you get industrialization. It's not agrarian nationalism as opposed to industrialization. It's a view of of undoing the wrongs of European empire through redistributing the sovereign means of production, which is the land. So finally, uh, listeners might be saying, what about that dang Rome, Rome consensus? So what the Rome consensus is built upon this collective set of reforms that have been going on for the what, 50 years prior to this? 60 yes. years prior to this? Yeah. Yes, yes. So the Rome consensus is, is my phrase for, for, for the tenets of faith about economies, peasants, post-colonial nations, and history, which are held at the FAO, whose headquarters are moved from Montreal to Rome um, at this time. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's symbolized by folks like Doreen Warner, who casts land redistribution as the middle way, the third way in between communism and pure capitalism in which you've got an exploited proletariat who can never rise. In between is land reform, land redistribution. Uh, and all, there are other important intellectuals who contribute to the making of this consensus. And importantly, uh, other exiles with uh, a sense, a strong sense of the role of displacement in European history. For example, Rainer Schickelet, whose father, René Schickelet, is the Alsatian novelist of displacement, an anti-fascist activist, um, uh, but also post-colonial intellectuals. For example, the Bengali economist Sam Sen, who gives the foul uh, the recipe for what will later be known as appropriate technology, the idea that the state should provide an infrastructure of information, seeds, supports, buckets, hose, small tools that can support making a tiny plot of land economically sustainable and successful for a growing population. He has the data to prove that it can be possible in India. Uh, and he persuades Norris Dodd, second director general of the FAO, that this is the way forward. So the Rome consensus is an idea. It's an idea about how post-colonial post nations can evolve from majority agrarian nations to industrial nations with broadcast horizontal economic growth. That is, you know, the ordinary man, the every man and every woman participating in having a small bucket factory or a small hole factory in their backyard. It's a, it's a, it's a profound vision of a kind of ca capitalism that would where everyone would have a share of the economic bounty. And it depends on a certain view of technology. It depends on a certain view of world history and it depend, looks to the Mexican revolution and the Irish revolution as successful examples of a struggle against empire and class monopoly. Well, let's um, let's talk about maps. Uh, let's talk about information infrastructure. Um, you've you've alluded to car to to that already, and the second part of the, uh, the the book is cartophilia or building information infrastructures. So I want to I want to briefly go back to what you had said earlier about drawing maps in the dirt. Um, 
So could you explain that and 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 that's importance to to this 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 process now the next what's only about 30 or 25 to 30 years. Um, mm-hmm. 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 Well, there's a there's a two-part revolution in maps over over a 50-year period. So one of those happens at the at the FAO and at the United Nations and it's the the creation of global maps of soil and global information uh, infrastructures. So I'm using this term information infrastructure to think about the work of a bureaucracy that's charged with mapping the soil quality of every piece of land everywhere on earth with the idea that the United Nations will support post-colonial nations in doing a kind of land redistribution that's going to work with everyone. To wit, if if Al is a peasant and I'm the administrator and I'm going to give Al a plot of land, Al, if I give you a plot of, if I give your brother a nice plot of land that's got fertile loam and it's an acre and I give you a plot of land that's an acre and it's all sand, are you going to be happy? No, I will not be. No. 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 So in order to do a land reform that's going to actually effectively work, we're going to need a, a worldwide map of where the sand and the rock is, and where fertile soil is, what we can ir- irrigate and how. We've got to have a plan. So the United Nations, the facilitators at the United Nations imagine that they are going to be building this, uh, building, building the support system which is made out of paper. What a fascinating idea. Maps are one part of it. So are seed catalogs. So are so enormous social science bibliographies of, on land tenure and the history of land tenure and the history of agricultural cooperatives. So a huge information network supporting these top-down maps, but they're still top-down maps. Now, one of the things that happens as the influence of the UN begins to wane and my, the, the rest of my story is about, in the second half of the book, is about the assassination of land reform. Uh, as the influence of the United Nations begins to wane, and it becomes clear that these maps and bibliographies and the United Nations support for small countries is not winning against the U.S.-led Green Revolution and ideas of, a, of large industrial farms at scale meant creating sufficient rice and wheat for the world. As that happens, the ideas about land tenure and freedom from displacement and local self-governance and the importance of rethinking mapping and putting technology in the hands of the peasants, those don't disappear. Those don't just go away because because, uh, USAID is subsidizing pesticides and improved strains of wheat and rice in India. Instead, they take the form of local movements, local movements that are sometimes supported by by Marxist activists, sometimes by Marxist academics like Robert Chambers, who are thinking about how local villages can map their own resources. So Robert Chambers is a very interesting figure. In the 1950s and 60s, we see him getting started as one of the young social scientists who's working in Africa on problems of land tenure, on an ending empire and a peaceful transition built on on small shareholders. And he's thinking about the role of infrastructure in supporting these small shareholders. By the 1970s, however, he's one of the people who's asking, where's this all going to go? And where's this all going to go if forces kill land redistribution at the national and international level, if this gets killed by the Cold War? What's going to happen to those villagers who were looking forward to farming their own piece of land. Can they organize among themselves? 
And Robert Chambers and his colleagues throw a series of conferences at the University of Sussex, which revolt, results in a, in a radical document called the Sussex Manifesto, which is a new vision of what international development could mean. But key to Chambers' contribution is the idea that we need a new practice of development economics, which is about putting information into the hands of the local villagers and asking them to make important decisions about the future of their community and the future of resources and where the resources should go. And they put together a kind of package, a toolkit, sometimes called the Sussex Toolkit, which includes the practice of just walking the landscape together, walking the landscape, looking at sites of drought, sites of flourishing, looking at biodiversity, looking at where the water is being poisoned by toxic effluents from a factory downstream, and then mapping it using all 200 members of the village, including old people, including women, making sure that the women are actually talking, maybe taking the women like, aside. Uh, John Stilgo would be all over this. And it's, it sounds like a new urbanist doing a charrette or a, yeah. a transect of a, of a, a suburb to discover, discuss how people should want to develop it. Yeah, and, and indeed, the language of transects is is part of how mm-hmm. part of how they're talking about it at Sussex. This is something yeah. that urban studies and ur- architecture schools get on board with later in the nineteen nineties. Mm-hmm. But it's you can see it all coming together for the first time in at, at the University of Sussex in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. So there's a story about uh, how this centralized bureaucracy of mapping soil and supporting peasants falls apart. And it's in the vacuum left behind by the United Nations as it's failing, these new grassroots initiatives grow up. And I, you know, I find analyzing this part of the analysis the most challenging and the most difficult to work with, because there's so much to admire about Chambers' work and the work of his associates in India and Latin America and all of the amazing work that they are able to do. And in certain places, I have uh, a couple of cases of of court cases that are won by indigenous people for the right over their own land or won by peasants uh, to hold the factory responsible for polluting the water supply. And that is real grassroots power. We have the archives of this movement. I visited two of them, one in India, one in England. Those archives hold tremendous bodies of evidence about these grassroots movements. On the other hand, what the grassroots movements cannot do is organize land redistribution on a national, let alone international level. So there, you know, there are a handful of examples of these grassroots mapping mapping groups reorganizing uh, and egalitizing, um, making equal the the plots of land in a squatter settlement in the slums of Ceylon. Um, but they cannot call upon the government. They are not organized on a national level. That there's there's no there's no real ability to redistribute income or wealth on a national level. For that, you need something like those original peasant land reform movements uh, of Ireland and India working on a national level to protest high rents and the monopolization of land by a landlord class that represents the remnants of the colonial economy. So you described the assassination of the of the overall the global land reform mo- movement. Could you briefly explain that and 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 how who pulled the trigger and what killed the victim? Yes. So the the 
the third section, uh, the third section is about the rise of something like a neoliberal land reform. Um, now, for most people, neoliberal means just crap they don't like. So, could you could you explain <laughs> what neoliberal means for you? I, I, I'm, well, sure I, it's, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's more than that. So, I call it bureau, I call it part three bureau, is bureaucracy or the revolt against global government, and I see I see this. Uh, I see developing at the same time as the United Nations is doing its work. There are other classes of people who really don't like centralized control over land. And if you look, you can see them most clearly if you look at what's been happening in Britain. So land reform didn't end with Ireland and India in Great Britain. Those ideas, those Georgist ideas, they percolate over and they turn into rent controls in Edinburgh and London, uh, and later efforts at public housing. You can see all of that as efforts at land nationalization, which is one of the chief most platforms of the Labour Party through the 1960s. Land nationalization is key. And the idea is the government of Britain should be responsible for managing what is built and how, for keeping land and houses cheap enough for ordinary working people to use it. We shouldn't have monopolization of the land by the rich where billionaires have ghost mansions in Kensington that they never use. That land should be for the people who live there. There should be public parks and schools and also forests, and we, sh we should cultivate this together. So we're going to need a nationalized bureaucracy. The revolt against that, the revolt against that is what I call neoliberalism. And so those are the, the it, it has an intellectual wing, and we've learned about that intellectual wing, wing from historians such as Jennifer Burns, Ingus Bergen, who's written, both of whom have written about Hayek and Milton Friedman and uh, the, long, the long train of economic thinkers who prescribed free market economics as an antidote to the welfare state. Also, we should underscore as an antidote to land nationalization, urban planning, public housing, all forms of government allocating how cities should be built. So, at this moment in the history of land reform, the people who are stand least to benefit from land nationalization and rent control are landlords in Britain, the people who own buildings and are renting them, who are being told there are going to be caps on how much you can charge to your renters. There are There's enormous paperwork and there's a queue to be reviewed if you want to build a new housing project or for... I, or build a new shopping center or build a new parking lot. You're going to be reviewed by urban planners. And this red tape uh, creates a class of, of this class of actors uh, who stand to lose by land nationalization or rent control are organized. They are organized by a handful of ideologues, free market ideologues who have been reading Hayek they have been reading Hayek and they believe that red tape is the road to serfdom. And they start writing, uh, they start writing letters to the heads of, of real estate corporations and construction industry corporations saying, can we help, can, can you join us in assembling a case against land nationalization? So a lot of information is exchanged and pamphlet war is launched and they start looking around for political candidates who they can run against uh, the centralized control of, of land. And this is the group that puts forward Margaret Thatcher uh, for wider and wider ambitions. And of course, one of her first acts 
as prime ministers to privatize public housing, which is at, you know, at first enormously po- popular because middle-class families are getting to own their own house at, at relatively low cost. But the, those are the moves uh, that today ha- have made housing so unaffordable in Britain. It's the repeal of rent control and land redistribution and a vision of a more equitable system of land holding. And what we have now is a system of economics where housing is unaffordable to most people and many cities are completely unaffordable. Uh, and they're, they're held as um, you know, ghost towns uh, where the, the price of real estate is tagged to uh, international equity markets rather than to what ordinary working people can afford. So that's that's the result of the assassination of land reform. And that is what I see as the rise of neoliberalism in land politics. So uh, finally, let's briefly talk about squatting. So um, is, this a, is this the newest sort of democratic movement uh, for occupancy? for getting people on their own land is, is squatting? Is, and is this happening worldwide? So it's it's one of the newer techniques. It's one of the techniques of occupation that I see developing in developing in all of those places where, where government fails to secure the rights of smallholders. So you can see squatting in the post-war world as a global phenomenon. It's ha- squatting is happening in London after the Second World War, soldiers returned from the front and find that there's insufficient housing, they can't rent a flat, squatting is happening in post-war Paris, squatting happens in post-war New York and London whenever the price of housing rises and the supply of housing is not caught up and there's not enough housing for students and and for workers, squatting outbreaks appears. People break into into buildings that are not zoned for housing, buildings that are left standing empty, and they repossess them in their own right. Squatting is also embraced at the same time in the developing world as a technique for indigenous people to protest land seizure. So a kind of DIY land reform. So for example, in Peru, the Marxist organizer Hugo Blanco is organizing Quechua peasants. Uh, The Quechua is the native indigenous population and they've been prohibited from owning land. And they see, they stage occupations where in the middle of the night, they break into a neighboring landholder's field and they set up their own dwellings. They're camping out and they're claiming the land for the Quechua people. And they, uh, the Quechua are holding public marches in, in uh, the cities of Peru. Uh, Hugo Blanco is arrested and he's, he's tried in a notable trial which has sympathy marches in London in 1968 at exactly the same time as there's an outbreak of squatting in London. So it's very clear that the people who are involved in squatting in London see resonances of the indigenous indigenous movement in Peru and elsewhere, these so-called land invasions, which are really, really squatters techniques. And there's a whole, there's a whole very complicated debate about whether squatting in London and squatting in the developing world are the same thing and how they should be seen. But one of the main currents in the 1960s and 1970s is that many urban thinkers and thinkers about architecture who are lecturing at the Royal Institute of British Architects, who are lecturing at MIT, who are training future architects, they see all of this activity as the shape of justice and the shape of cities to come. Cities in the future are going to 
going to have to be built in a way that will accommodate ordinary people. And so squatting should be, instead of being denounced and evicted by the capitalists, squatting should be embraced as a kind of people's architecture. An architect should go and work for these people. Now, this is a kind of crazy claim. It still seems impossibly radical today. Um, but maybe one of the foremost thinkers in Britain is Colin Ward, who, uh, you know, who publishes many, many, many books about urban planning and about anarchism and about grassroots politics through the 1970s and 1980s. And I think it's and uh, historians like Amy Offner have uh, have traced this the the results of this kind of mixed vision of popular building of the city, which becomes the rule and a kind of shape of a hybrid state-private practice in much of Latin America. Uh, I think it's important to remember this moment of radicalism in which that is seen as a route to the people owning the city, the people making decisions about what their house will look like, what their community will look like, who owns land. That is sometimes lost in later iterations of neoliberalism, where it's really, you know, the landholding is really a foregone conclusion. So squatting, you know, squatting is a squatting is a kind of mixed bag. There are very radical elements. There are moments when squatting is a technique of very radical Marxist movements for taking the land back, or indigenous music movements. The international connections are profound. There are Latinos in New New Mexico who see Hugo Blanco's movement in in Peru as as the the starter gun, the trigger for their own. Um, their own moment of reclaiming land that their ancestors owned that was protected by the Spanish crown and then by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo for seizing that land back from the white ranchers who had stolen it illegally. And those movements in New Mexico seem to trigger African-American movements for land reparation and indigenous occupations of Ganyanka in upstate New York and Alcatraz off the San Francisco Bay. So 1968 to 1973, around the world is this moment of furious reoccupation of land in which squatting is the technique. And how people interpret that and where that will go is very, very mixed. But that's maybe the highlight. That's yet- the peak Squatting yes. is is in many places, if I understand it correctly, what people call living. Uh, if I have a, if I'm in a, let's not use failed state language, but if I'm in a failed city government, and I notice a lot of them in the United States these days, um, which for whatever reason that the records were tragically accidentally burned down in a fire, which after a flood, um, and there are no records, I would be squatting. And but if I look at uh, say numer- in in many many places throughout the world, that is sort of the the situation in of normal life. I am squat. I am a squatter because I I have no title to the land on which my family might have lived for multiple generations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. Yes. So it. Yes. I mean squat squat there. There's an argument to be made that squatting is the original form of land ownership. That's what John Locke so, kind of said. I mean, but but let's not get back to that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but yes, I mean that is, but that that is the situation. I mean, as I, I mean, as I understand, most people in Cairo are squatters. Well, it also depends on on what you think you mean by squatting, and that's one of the things that's being worked out in these debates over squatting exactly. in the 1970s. Is squatting an individual proprietor 
like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like Locke imagines the landholder mixing his labor with the land and creating property where there was none before, in which case a squatter looks like a libertarian. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, you know, classical property right there. Mm -hmm. And there are observers in the 1970s who think that that is exactly what's happening in London and New York and across the developing world and it is to be encouraged. And then we should document where these people are and we should give them a title so mm -hmm. that they can get a loan. That's, Many the Hernan world... that's the Hernando de Soto argument, I, I would, I would imagine. Yeah, that's right. So Hernando de Soto is 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 representative of what happens when that logic makes its way to the World Bank mm -hmm. in the 1980s, and squatter titling becomes the form of land reform that the World Bank will countenance, mm -hmm. giving peasants a title to what they had already appropriated. Now, from another point of view, what's happening with these Quechua peasants is not. You know, there are not many locks going on to the ranchero. They're, they are the, the descendants of the original occupiers of the land before colonial land theft. And they are reasserting a more ancient form of land title, which is to say the right of the commons, the right to own land in commons, um, which you know, which was not articulated that way necessarily in indigenous land holdings. That's kind uh, of a, I mean, I mean this, is a, this is a problem. There's a little bit of a European fiction being projected upon an indigenous people. Uh, I think the, the person who had the land was the Inca. Um, yes. and, and other people were more or less subservient to the Inca. So, you know, this is, this is one of the, the, the problematics of, of, this, of this discussion. So where, where, where I think, you know, I think uh, historians of the early modern period are doing really wonderful things with trying to understand exactly how we should think about those non-exclusive hunting, fishing, territorial rights of mm -hmm. indigenous peoples in North and South America, for example. So we're learning a, a lot from people like my friend Alan Greer about that. So I, um, uh, I'm not, uh, I do... I do think that one of the important things that happens in the 1970s is that we have the workshop on political economy associated with Eleanor Ostrom using this language of the commons mm -hmm. for the first time. You're right that it is an anachronism and it's a European anachronism applied to indigenous landholding. On the other hand, what they're doing is assembling a huge bibliography of instances of collective management of natural resources, whether it's land or fisheries or irrigation. And they're, uh, they're trying to understand the rules, the, the variety uh, and mainstream of rules that, that uh, indigenous and traditional groups use to manage these resources, which are not individual proprietorship, right? There are a limit on how many fish you can catch from the fishery, which is held together. There are a limit on how many cows you can have on the grazing lands, which are not subdivided into individual pieces of land in Switzerland. Uh, and what Eleanor Ostrom's work is able to document is that is that commons are not a tragedy. They're not a tragedy as Garrett Hardin had theorized because the members of the grazing commons can talk to each other about how many cows there are. They can talk about how many fish you should take off. So they're not a tragedy, they're actually intelligent. And there's no reason that when you're trying to help the peasant or indigenous people, you need to turn them all into single owner proprietors of land. So that opens the door to the idea that there could be a land redistribution program from the United Nations, if you will, that, that simply reinstituted indigenous landholding, indigenous collective landholding, that collective systems would work, they would be okay as a way of managing forests or rivers or land or fisheries or anything else. So that's it. 
uh, that's, I think, a sort of um, exciting strain of intellectual thought that's happening at the very moment that the United Nations is collapsing. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that, you know, I find so intriguing about this story and so intriguing about working on relatively recent decades is that the the client, the major client dies, the major client collapses, the United Nations is is assassinated by the World Bank and the US takeover of world policy. But all along, you have these social scientists who have glimpsed this idea that there could be a world power fighting on behalf of peasants and indigenous people. And people like Eleanor Ostrom and Robert Chambers and James C. Scott continue to spend their careers working through alternative systems of property that have existed, that have really existed in real life. Now, why are they doing that? And this is, you know, that's really, that was really one of the questions underneath everything that motivated me to write this book. Why are you, why is John Stolgo looking at the landscape? Why is James C. Scott trying to imagine resistance as a legitimate form of politics? Why is Colin Ward and why are Eleanor Ostrom so intent on describing and justifying collective, collective manners of holding natural resources, including land? And I think, you know, once you have this context of the Rome consensus and the making of the United Nations, the answer becomes clear. They're trying to justify an alternative global order of property that looked like it would be possible as soon as we undid European empire. Tragically, their client died before they got the answer. And what we have now is the result of uh, neoliberalism with a little sprinkling of radical ideas. And yet the legal impulses of land reform, land redistribution, rent control were executed in every nation on the face of the earth. So there are legal precedents for protecting the rights of peasants. There are organizing techniques. And now there are legal justifications and historical justifications and political justifications for the kinds of alternatives to single owner proprietorship and neoliberalism that these, these thinkers were we're trying to document. Well, my guest today has been Joe Gouldy. She's the author of The Long Land War, now available from Yale University Press. Joe, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. <laughs>